So some years ago, when I first heard the phrase bright sadness to describe the season of Lent, I loved how it sounded, but I didn't really understand it. I was already struggling to know, practically speaking, what repentance looked like. Could I just confess my sins and be done with it? Or was I supposed to be thinking about my sins a lot? Was Lent a time to kind of feel extra guilty? Lots of uncertainty. And so the idea of figuring out what bright sadness might mean just didn't compute. The question of what to do about our own sin is an incredibly difficult one for human beings. And that's whether you're a Christian or not. Sooner or later, the realization hits that not only have I done something wrong, but often it's something that I'm helpless to fix. What do we do about our sin? What can we do? And how are we supposed to feel about the problems that we cause? It's easy to list the theological words that apply to sin. Confess, repent, lament. But the church doesn't always do a good job of unpacking these. The main thing that my early training in the church taught me about sin was, don't do it. <laughs> Honestly, that's mostly what I internalized, at least from what I was taught. Sin is bad, so don't. Just don't. It was not super helpful. And so what I found was that I ended up absorbing and imitating attitudes towards sin that I saw in the larger culture outside, our church, outside the church. This was things like, don't think too much about your own sin. If you can't help thinking about it, excuse it or deny it if at all possible. And if it's not possible to ignore it or deny it, feel really, really lousy about yourself. There's nothing else to do. But things are really interesting in this particular cultural moment and how, it, how we as a, as a nation are dealing with sin. Kind of for the first time in my lifetime, there's actually a national dialogue of sorts about how to deal with sin. Large numbers of people are grappling with what it means as a secular society to deal with sin. Criminal sins, like widespread incidents of sexual assault, or systemic sins, like corruption, pollution, racism, or personal sins, like hatred or greed in our own hearts. The larger culture is actually initiating conversations about the themes of Lent, sin, and repentance, even though they do not use those words. Of course, many sins, and most sins to be honest, don't really rate the world's attention even now. Um, for like 90% of sins, the old rules still apply. We're still collectively pretending they're not an issue. But at least for some categories of sin, there is a collective willingness not only to call out certain behaviors as wrong, but also to demand change. So in some arenas of human behavior, the world is issuing a call to repentance. As citizens of the kingdom of God, we're not of this world, but we do live in it. The grief of the world is our grief, and its troubles our troubles. As we become more aware of the kind of repentance that the world is calling us to, 
it becomes all the more important to understand the repentance that the Lord God is calling us to. Where do these two calls overlap? And where do they differ? We'll look tonight to the prophet Joel for wisdom. You can look in your bulletins or in your Bibles. The whole book of Joel is just three chapters long, and it contains not only some of the world's most beautiful nature poetry, but it also serves as a primer to why and how we might live out the bright sadness of Lent. As we go, we can compare and contrast similarities and differences between how our culture understands and deals with sin and repentance and how the prophet Joel instructs us. The first similarity to note is the circumstances that lead to concern about sin. In the first chapter of Joel, before our reading, we read that the whole community is facing ecological disaster because of their sin. Their land has been devastated by drought, a hideous plague of locusts, and fire. I'll read a bit from chapter 1. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Flame has burnt all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant because the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Furthermore, a second and even more terrible round of ecological devastation is waiting in the wings unless the people repent immediately. Does that description sound familiar? We don't need to imagine a world where people living in greed, gluttony, and excess are confronted with the prospect of ecological catastrophe because this is the world we inhabit. Pollutants degrading the quality of air and water, melting polar ice caps, erratic weather events wreaking havoc on coastlines. We live in a planet filled with evidence of our negligence and greed. And people all over the world are even now warning us of a day of reckoning. Repent before it is too late, they cry. This is a meaningful point of connection between the church and the world. To be willing to recognize the effects of sin in our world, to hold people accountable for their actions, and to call for repentance, lest something epically and irreversibly bad happen. These are all significant points of overlap between what the church has always known and what the world is ready to hear. But even at the outset, a critical difference emerges. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. God speaks. God himself is raising the alarm. The awareness of sin, the reality of sin, and of the dire consequences of sin is not a human construct or a human concern only, but a divine one. God himself, having created human beings in his own image and having provided all of creation as an expression of his love and provision for us, is calling us to account for what's happening. Continuing in verse 1. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before. 
nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Through his prophet, the Lord issues a warning that the day of the Lord is coming. Where human beings see only actions and their consequences at a natural material level, the prophet has the capacity to address the profound spiritual dynamics at work behind the natural dimension. Locusts and drought were common enough in the prophet Joel's time and place, but this particular situation was not just a run of bad luck. It was the direct consequence of a broken covenant with God. Now, we don't know the details. Joel does not list the specific sins that the people had committed. But there existed a holy covenant between God and his beloved people, and the people had betrayed it. The connection between God and human beings, and between human beings and the created world, are all interwoven. Where men and women, the kings and queens of creation, break faith with their creator, all of creation suffers. That was true in the time of Adam and Eve, when they trespassed limits set for them, and the ground was cursed. It was true in the time of Noah, when the earth was corrupted by violence, and God sent a flood to cleanse it. Now in Joel's time, the day of reckoning is once again looming overhead like storm clouds about to break. When humans make a mess of the world through our own actions, God gets involved. For better or for worse, God is invested in our world and invested in us. And on the day of the Lord, blessings and punishment will be sorted out in the most exquisitely precise, just, fair, and equitable way the world has ever seen. And whether this is a good thing or a bad thing for you and me personally depends entirely on how we respond to what happens next. In verse 12, God speaks again. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Here it is. The God of the universe has noticed our sin, and now he's asking for something of us. Just maybe not what we expected. When this divine, holy, all-powerful God addresses the hideous mess we've made of our home and our lives, he speaks to us first, not about our actions, but about our hearts. We know we're guilty. We know that justice requires that we receive punishment for what we've done. But rather than raining down the dark clouds of judgment on our heads, or issuing threats that we're going to get it if we don't shape up, God addresses our need to return to him with all our hearts. The God of the universe, who has expressed nothing but love toward us, and against whom we have sinned abominably, comes to confront us. And what does he ask? He calls us to sadness. Fasting, weeping, mourning, the tearing of the heart, all outward expressions of a deep sadness, of grief. 
This is totally different from the, the world looks for in repentance. The world has very little use for sadness. Sadness is a bummer to those who want to eat, drink, and be merry. And sadness seems weak and ineffective compared to the outrage needed to fuel revolution. Sadness has no target, no enemy, and seemingly no power to shame us into being good. Absent a loving, personal, and very real God, the only salvation from our sins is whatever salvation we can come up with for ourselves. The world's answer for devastation wrought by sin is for everyone to stop sinning, stop being greedy, stop using more than your fair share of resources, stop ravaging the earth, and stop exploiting other people while you're at it. Just stop it. Don't do bad things. Do good things instead. That's all the world has to offer. There's nothing else to offer. Apart from God, we are forced to fall back on our own righteousness which apart from God is no righteousness at all. And so, try as we might, the long, sin-filled days churn on and on into ever-increasing futility and despair. God does require amendment of our ways. To turn toward God is to turn away from sinful actions, sinful thoughts. But there is a chasm of difference between stop it and Come to me. This is the difference between outrage-fueled, despair-inducing futility of self-righteousness that the world calls us to and the bright sadness of Lent. God is not primarily calling us toward better behavior or to become better people. He invites us into restored relationship with himself and all that that involves. Our sin has a strange estranged us from the one who loves us, and this is cause for deep sadness. Before we can do anything else, it is good and right to weep and to mourn with all our hearts. That is the source of our sadness at Lent. And what about the source of the brightness of Lent? We can see it right through the sadness. When we repent with our whole hearts, we do so in the hope that we may be reconciled with a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, a God who relents over disaster. The bright sadness of Lent is the hope of once again being close to God. The sadness of Lent lays in the experience of sin and how it hinders our intimacy with God. And this sadness will never completely lift in our lifetime. It will be there until we see Jesus face to face and we are made perfectly, finally whole. But the brightness of Lent lay in the character of God. And it is the character of God always to have mercy. And so we tremble at our sin. We grieve the consequences of our sin. We repent and turn away from sin. But we do all of this in the bright hope that we may be received by our most merciful God. Joel continues, verse 14. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God? Who knows? 
the prophet asks. The prophet lays on us the duty of heartfelt repentance uh, without assurance as to whether we will be spared from the consequences of our sin. We journey back to God without condition, without guarantees of what will follow. Fasting and mourning are expressions of regret and sorrow. They are not bargaining chips. We are emboldened to repent and mourn because it is the right thing to do. And we repent with great hope because we know what God is like. Merciful, compassionate, faithful. But God is a person, not a principle, not an ethical system, not an abstraction of justice. And thank God that he is a person and not an abstraction of justice, because if we were to receive justice, the justice we deserve, we would be abandoned to the mess that we make of our lives. It is because he is a person that we can dare to hope for mercy. Now, you and I are not in quite the same situation as the God-fearing Jews of Joel's time. Praise the Lord. (laughs) For those who put their faith in Jesus and not in their own righteousness, the hope of salvation is made certain. For those who put their faith in Jesus and not in their own righteousness, the hope of forgiveness is made certain. And thanks be to God for those who put their faith in Jesus and not in their own righteousness, restored communion with God is certain. Being spared from the earthly consequences of our sin is not promised to us. This Lent, if you have the hard conversation with someone you've wronged and you've asked them for forgiveness, you may or may not receive it. If you confess to stealing from your employer or cheating or on your exams, you may receive leniency from your company or your professor, or you may not. If you confess to criminal activity, you may go to jail. That would be just. But listen carefully. Wherever the hope of repentance is rooted in faith in the character of God, repentance never fails to restore the one thing that is most precious, that one thing that makes life joyful and bright, even in the midst of sadness. Look again at the one thing that the prophet offers. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Back in that first chapter of Joel, one of the disasters listed as a consequence of the locusts is that the grain offering and the drink offering were no longer being offered in the house of the Lord. In other words, worship had been disrupted. The destruction of fields and vineyards means that people have no grain, no fermented drink to offer in worship to God. The people have lost their opportunity to participate in worship in this way. The gift of repentance is not the avoidance of punishment, but the restoration of harmony with God. Out of his great love for us, God provides us with grain and grapes, a good harvest. Out of our love for him, we add our labor and love to the grain and grapes and present bread and wine to God in a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Out of love for us, 
God receives and blesses the bread and wine and makes it into spiritual nourishment for us. This is the cycle of love that godly grief restores. Absent the presence of God, the world can only call us to try to depend more and more heavily on our own righteousness, an effort that can only result in cycles of outrage and despair as we fail again and again to behave in the ways we know we should. That is what worldly grief produces. Our passage concludes with a decision by the people. Verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Repentance is the duty of the whole people of God. The fast of Lent is not comprised of a bunch of isolated individuals feeling guilty at home. We gather, we assemble, we leave our private space and come into the house of the Lord. Verse 17, between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? The solemn assembly takes place not at the market or at the town hall or online. The people of God gather in God's house to corporately conduct personal business with God. We, in ourselves, can't save the planet. We can't fix the ills of society. We can't heal the people we've hurt. We can't save our own souls. This is the sadness of Lent. And it is right to mourn and grieve this reality. It matters. This Lent, as you seek to live in the bright sadness of Lent, don't fret too much about whether you're feeling all the right feelings. Don't make your emotions into works of righteousness. But whenever you're able, spend time with God, listening to his call to turn back toward him. And if by grace you are given capacity to grieve for your sins, rejoice, because it is in the presence of God between the vestibule and the altar that we weep. And the bright sadness of Lent is that though we mourn, we do not mourn as those who have no hope. Our hope is in the Lord, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.